Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm your host, Charles Maxwood, and this week we have six panelists. We have from... Uh, we have from Ruby Inside, Ruby Weekly, The Ruby Show, The JavaScript Show, JavaScript Weekly, and on Twitter as Peter C. Peter Cooper. Welcome. We have from uh, Oklahoma, uh, one of the organizers of the Red Dirt Ruby Conference, the author of the Faster CSV Library. Uh, he can be found on Twitter as at JEG2, James Edward Gray. Hello, everybody. Uh, from here in Utah, we have David Brady. He is the author of the Tour Bus Library. Uh, he is a co-host on the ADD Casts, which are awesome. And uh, he's uh, currently a freelance developer. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. We also have from Pivotal Labs, um, Josh Susser. He blogs at blog.hasmanythrough.com. He is the number 51 committer to Ruby on Rails. And according to LinkedIn, he has six patents to his name. Seven, actually. Seven. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you. Thank you. And then we have the author of Exceptional Ruby, uh, a blogger at avdi.org slash devblog. And on Twitter as avdi, we have avdi Grimm. Woo! Great to be here. And I'm Charles Max Wood. I am the host of the Rails Coach podcast the Teach Me to Code podcast and screencasts. And I have another podcast that I just talk about stuff going on at intentionalexcellencepodcast.com. And I will be also running an eight-week course, uh, video and uh, online course um, at teachmetocodeacademy.com on Ruby on Rails. So uh, let's go ahead and get started here. Um the question was, uh, what makes beautiful code? And I think that's an interesting question, um, not just for Rubyists, but just in general for coders. So um, I put some feelers out on Twitter to see what people thought. But before we get into that, let's see what our panelists think. And I'll just let anyone chime in that, that wants to. But what makes beautiful code? It has to be written in Ruby. <laughs> OK. <laughs> it does not have to be written in Ruby. Um, Oh yes, it does. We can with him. No, it doesn't. It jumped him from the car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, beautiful code to me is code that you look at it and it's very intuitive. It, it it satisfies two things. The first time you see it, it's intuitive and it leads you very clearly into what it's doing and it explains itself. And then every other time that you look at it, it doesn't bore you to tears with stopping you to tell you what it's doing. So it hits that sweet spot between being terse and being explicit, be, between being informative and being magical. Wow, I definitely want to go after that because I've been thinking about this question all day and what I was going to say on this podcast, and I'm deathly ill and heavily medicated, so I came up with this weird answer that I was sure was just the drugs talking, and it was basically what David Brady just said. Yeah. Oh, I I he am said, James Edward Gray's drugs. <laughs> but no, I, I really liked his idea of, I was trying to think of what makes something cool. And it's, for me, it was like when I look at it and it gives me that aha moment when I'm reading it, that, that shifts my thinking in some way or something like that. So that was actually what I was going to say too. So, so I've been actually thinking about this a lot too. This is Josh. And um, so I, I want to, put it in the context of the question of what makes anything beautiful. And I, I think that at some level, beauty is a survival adaptation, that we evolved to consider other people beautiful if they have that set of genetic characteristics that would make for healthy offspring and passing on your own genes. And we evolved to in certain environments where we would look at things and if they were things that would help us survive or not threaten us, they would be beautiful. And if they were things that were dangerous, we would find them fearful and ugly. So people look at spiders and get all freaked out because they're dangerous. And, and I don't think that's the entirety of aesthetic appreciation of things, but it's a pretty good starting point to think of things. And so I think about code, you know, thinking about beautiful code, I think that Beautiful code is code that 
is not threatening to us. It's not going to be a problem for us to work with. It's not going to get us woken up at three in the morning. And and it's code that uh, you know contributes to our happiness and our survival. Uh. <laughs> is, is, I, I, is is that I way too? That. Is that way I too love, philosophical? No, I, I actually I really like that. the contributing yeah, makes a lot to of sense. survival part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so from this, we can extrapolate that Ruby has big wobbly eyes, and, <laughs> and C Sharp has one eye bigger than the other, and eleven. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look up Ruby Chan, that's what I <laughs> was going to say. Yeah. Ruby Chan, <laughs> or is it There's Ruby a- Ten? I forget. There's a new, uh, it's Ruby Chen, but there was a new one posted. Uh, yeah, Ruby just Talk. yeah, just this week was another one uh, posted. It's an old uh, meme about taking like this Japanese anime girl looking character and, and using her as a mascot for technical Well, projects. I mean, originally, like way, way back in Japan, Ruby had a semi, a semi, um, semi official mascot, and it was an anime, uh, you know, red haired anime girl. And uh, that didn't really translate well. So, uh, you know, we got the gem that we have now. Um. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. Talk about beautiful Ruby. Well, I- interesting. We're, we're talking about, uh, it, it almost seems kind of the, the metadata on the programming, you know, where we're, we're saying, you know, it, it, it kind of invokes this uh, response where, you know, it, it, it kind of hits the both the the elegant and the functional and uh, the you know the descriptive um, but I, I'm wondering if there's something maybe a little more concrete that people can do to make their code reach that stage and what what practices are there that makes that you can implement to make code beautiful um, I'll, I'll jump on that one just because I'm feeling really chatty today um, with a, with a non-answer which I'm, I'm gonna basically say, uh, we need to do this, and then we'll open it up to, to how do we do it. And the, 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 the reason we need to do this, and, and I've, I've coded this way my whole life based on something a climbing instructor taught me in high school. Um, he was teaching us how to tie knots. You tie a figure eight knot for one type of thing. You type a, tie a, you know, a square knot for something else. You tie you know, a granny knot for no reason ever. Don't do it. Um, that sort of thing. And he's tying this uh, a sheep shank, which is a fairly convoluted knot. If you're not a Boy Scout, it's a fairly fairly convolu- convoluted knot. And he ties this gorgeous sheep shank, and we're all tying this, and they, they're just these mangled lumps of of rope. And he stood up and he says, "Okay, you're hanging from a cliff, 200 feet in the air. Um, you need to tie beautiful knots." And the reason why is because at 200 feet from the air, hanging from this piece of rope, you can look at a beautiful knot and immediately know if it's tied correctly. If it's a sloppy knot, you can't. You have to investigate it. You have to tease it apart and play with it. And um, now, should we spend all of our time uh, making beautiful code in every situation? Not necessarily. You know, the, the, the piece of your harness strap that hangs down that doesn't really serve a function, that should be tucked up and out of the way. It does not need to be macrameed into a series of beautiful knots all the way down your pant leg. Um, but uh, that's my motivation for why do I write beautiful code. And the reason why is because um, beautiful code can be inspected very easily. It can be dealt with very easily. So that's just me adding to the... I, I don't know that I know how to write beautiful code or how I would change ugly code into beautiful code. Um, but that's my motivation for why, and I just want to put that out there. Okay, I want to push... That's, that, that really speaks to me. Um, oh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I oh. agree. It, it does, but I, I want to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit here because we have other things like tests and, and things like that that also tell us whether or not the code is uh, written correctly or at least functions correctly. Is Is there a difference between written correctly and meets the functional requirements? Maybe it's more functions as intended than correctly, right? I don't even think there's a difference necessarily between tested code and beautiful code. Like, like no, there, I don't there's, know. There's, 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 well, there, I mean, you can have ugly code, but I mean, if, if ugly code that has tests on it is more beautiful to me. and, and I, more beautiful, I may be, maybe. I may be splitting, splitting hairs there. So, like, the... the, um, the that that metaphor really really speaks to me. Um, and I, I thank you for that. that. That was Josh, right? No, um, that was David. No. It was David. David. Okay, yeah. Because I mean, I sorry about that. I um, 
so I'm I'm into knots as well. Um, you know, I really like you know I learned my my twenty knots in scouts, and um, and it's very very true. I mean, knots. The thing that, that really speaks to me about that is, I mean, it, when I was thinking about my definition of beautiful code today, um, for me, uh, it really has to do with the shape of the code. Um, I think for me, yes. beautiful code um, has a shape to it, and it has a shape that matches the shape of the problem in your head. Um, and, and, and that can even be, like, that shape can be seen at various levels. That can even be the shape of the code on the page. Like, Dave Thomas has talked about zooming a code base out. When he's first coming into a code base, zooming it out until he can't actually read it, but he can sort of see the cadence of it. Um, and, um, and I think there, there's a lot of truth there, because when you... When, when you see certain rhythms um, in code or certain shapes to code, um, you can immediately sort of, uh, you know, get an idea for what it's doing. I mean, and, and so, so beautiful code for me, you know, if, if, if you have a problem, which you see as a series of matches and then things to apply to those, you know, things to apply at, if, the, if, some, if something, you know, if a pattern matches, then, then you know, if the, the shape of the code on the page is... Um, you know, is a mapping of patterns to actions, then you have beautiful code because it's it's the shape in your head is the same as the shape uh, on the page. And so that that idea of a knot really speaks to me because you can instantly see with a knot, you can see if it's been tied well uh, because it has that certain shape to it. Um, and the other reason it really speaks to me is that, um, you know, the thing about knots is, you know, very often when you really need them, you don't have time to think about how to tie a beautiful knot. But the great thing about knots is that you can practice them um, until it's second nature. I mean, you can practice a bowling until you can, um, you know, until you can tie it in the dark with your hands behind your back and always get it right. And so I think there are, at the, at the co low level code construction level, there are a lot of things that we can do that, um, you know, that we can just practice um, until you don't really have to think about it um, it's just second nature. I, I, obviously, I, I like that image of the shape of the code. Did you? Uh, did Eric Hodel show you his um, audio uh, analysis thing for Ruby code? He's showing it off at Ruby on Ails. Did you get I, to I hear? I did it? not. I did he, not. He he wrote this cute little script that used, I think, you know, MIDI output or something like that. Oh my to, gosh! I did the exact to, same thing. It, 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 and and it would go through a Ruby source file, and every line took a certain amount of time. And if a line was just the word end, it would produce a tone that was the pitch of which was proportional to the indentation of that end. So you could mm. listen to the to the script play a Ruby program, and you could hear do 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 and you could just listen to it and get a feel for what the shape of a program was. I'm not sure if this is the same thing or a different thing, but there was a a gem plugin at one point called Gem Sing, and I'm not sure if it runs in modern Ruby gems, but you can install the plugin and then do Gem Sing in the name of the gem, and it did something basically exactly like that. Uh, and it was interesting to play with on certain projects. That is so cool. So Avdi, um, your your comment about shape, the shape of code. Um, I so often when we talk about how to make code beautiful, I will hear programmers say that, you know, there should only be one statement per line. You should not ever go beyond 80 characters. You should, you should have all these patterns. And, and one of the reasons I left uh, Python, and Python's a great language, don't get me wrong, um, but one of the reasons I left Python was that the mandatory white space enforced a limit to how much I could compress the code. And I will occasionally, this is just me, this is a type of knot that I like to tie, I will occasionally write a very sparse function with one line in, right in the middle of it that's very, very dense. And, and usually it's some kind of math thing where you're setting up to do this mathematical function and then there's this 130 character vector op operation and then a little bit of, of math cleanup and teardown. And people, the, the instinct, if you're just following the rote of the code should look like this, it should be indented this much, it should have this many characters on it. Um, I want to push back on those people and say, no, 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 no. Back up and squint at this. You know, you, you do, do what Dave Thomas says. Put it in four in a four-point font or, or, or just back away from look at this function on the page. And what, do you, what does that tell you? What's the most important thing in this function? And they point right at the long line. I say, okay, now what's the most dangerous thing in this function? They point right at the long line. I say, this is a well-written function. You are afraid of the thing that you should be afraid of, <laughs> and, you are, and you are ignoring the boilerplate. And 
I would I claim that I would claim that that would be a beautiful function. Now, can it be abstracted? Maybe, and you know, the, the, I'm I'm doing I'm being general, and you may be able to find other refactors in specific cases. So, but so this is the interesting thing about shapes um, is that you know. You know, for me, uh, you know, beauty is the shape in your in your mind matches the shape on the page. But the problem is, um, different people model problems differently in their minds. So that shape in their mind is different, uh, you know, for you than it might be for me. Um, and that's something that I have to remember when I'm being very sort of judgmental about about mm-hmm. coding styles. Uh, for me, you know, I've found I'm I'm sort of pretty hardcore about the the 80 character limit. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, because I find that I just can't think about very many things on one line at one time, um, mm-hmm. it uh, you know it it basically stifles my ability to to think about the problem. That and, is fascinating. Uh, so if I don't, because so the reason it, I write the really dense line is because I have trouble keeping the uh, too many lines of code in mm-hmm. my head, and so when I have a function that rises to a crescendo, I put everything in that crescendo, and. Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah. Now, some of that math stuff, I will say. Some of that math stuff, I will say. Hello? Uh, I, lo- I lost your audio, Abdi. This can be modeled a little bit. Insert. Hello? Yeah, Abdi, you're, you're cutting in and out. We heard some Try of that math stuff. Um, Try again, Abdi. How about now? Yes. yes. Okay. So, um, some of that math stuff, I you know, it can be. I, th- I think modeled a little bit better in some of the functional languages. Um, I've always really liked the um, the pattern of you give the high level um, uh, the high level algorithm at the, on the on the very first line. You see this in Haskell. You have the high level algorithm on the very first line, and then it says where this ve- you know this uh, very well not variable, but you know where this symbol refers to this, and this symbol refers to this, and this symbol refers to this. So you have that that top level on the first line, rather than setting up a, up a bunch of variables and then doing the the uh, and then having the algorithm. You have the algorithm first, and then a b- bunch of where clauses saying, yeah. oh, and this is what all that stuff referred to. Yeah, actually, it, it, the the bit the best case where I have I have rigorously defended that shape with the the really dense line was exactly that. It was math stuff. It was a physics engine. And we'd taken a, a car, a remote control car game, and we'd made remote controlled motorcycles. And there's a problem with motorcycles um, in a physics engine, and it's that they tend to fall over um, because they don't have a four a four point base; they have a two point base. And um, I ended up writing this function that had to handle the physics for the motorcycle. And I sat down, and honest to God, I spent three days on the whiteboard, working out the various momentum components, the rotation, the torque on the bike in, in all three axes, the world, everything. And when I was done, this big long proof across three whiteboards came down to a simple subtraction, a vector subtraction. Subtract, and it was a weird thing, subtract the world's y-axis from the bike's torque in the x-axis. Just just cross product those and the bike will write itself. And and you know, take you know and it was this really weird Bizarre! It was arcane. It was total magic. And so, what that function was is it had all the math set up, and then it had this really long chunk of, of vector math, and there was a comment right above it that said, "This writes the motorcycle." R I T R I G H T S. You know, it makes it be upright. This writes the motorcycle, and then the rest of the function went on. And so, yeah, other programmers came along and they go, "Oh, that line's too long." Oh, there's a comment, and okay, we all know that comments are code smells, but there was a comment right above it that said. This writes the motorcycle, and now you know. As long as you're not concerned about writing that motorcycle, you don't have to touch that line, and you can just move on. Hmm. So I I think that speaks to a characteristic of beautiful code, which is that it reveals the intention to someone, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and you know, at Pivotal we write all of our code to be delivered to clients, and usually. You know, they take over the maintenance of the code after they're done with their engagement with us. Mm-hmm. So we don't just write the code to work correctly or to be uh, to be performant or what have you. We want the code to be something that our clients can walk away from an engagement with Pivotal and own the code and be happy working with it. And I, I was working on on a piece of code yesterday that we got it working and then we spent as much time getting it into a form that we liked a- after we had gotten it working. 
Mm-hmm. So we are working and then we spent just as much time ma- putting it in a form that we felt would reveal its intention enough that someone six months or a year later would look at that code and they would not have a pro- an issue dealing with that code. And that wasn't a wasted day of you macrameing uh, your lanyards. That was you saying, this is a really weird lump of rope. Some other climbers got to look at this. Let's turn this into a knot that they can recognize. Yes, absolutely. So I, I have to ask then, um, how frequently, if you want beautiful code, do you have to refactor? Always? Almost always? I, I don't know how often you have to refactor, but I think you have to think about refactoring all the time. Okay. And the, so if, if you're just writing a one-line method, there's not much to refactor there. Mm-hmm. But when you get to the point where you have one of those Gordian knot methods, uh, you, ne- you need to start cutting it up to, and refactor it into pieces that do reveal its intention. Because even if, a, you know, you know, to, to abuse this metaphor, even if you have a really well-constructed Gordian knot, nobody can understand it just by looking at it. Right. But do you refactor as you go then, or do you, do you write the I, whole thing and then refactor? Um, well, I like the, the red-green refactor cycle where... You know, if you're test driving, you you get the failing test, you get the passing test, and then you look at refactoring, and you can deal with that at at many levels of granularity. You can deal with it at a at a small granularity where you're looking at the you know the internals of one method. It, oh, I might want to extract a method or what or move stuff around within the method, or you can look at it at a at a macro scale in the you know, large large scale or organization of the software. But mm-hmm. it, it, but and the large scale stuff you don't do as frequently. But I'll 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 refactor a a you know a ten or twenty line method a couple times sometimes, right before I'm done with it. Mm-hmm. You know I I have to say two things. First of all, I I think it's amazing that we chose the abstract metaphor episode while I'm drugged, and I'm just very <laughs> grateful for that. Uh, but two, the um. I've been sitting here listening to you guys talk about, you know, knots and music and stuff like that. And I'm reminded of there have been a lot of uh, uh, brain studies about, you know, what makes experts and things like that. And one thing that comes up over and over again is that they will try to engage more of their senses when solving a problem because it uses different parts of the brain. And so basically if you're using, you know, your your feeling part of the brain and your seeing part of the brain and, and your smelling part of the brain, whatever. If you're using more parts of the brain at once, obviously you're doing more processing. And so you generally do a better job. And you can see that with like uh, musicians and stuff, right? When you're at the classical concert and the violin player's playing like crazy, he's swaying back and forth to the music, right? Because he can feel it inside of him. And, and that, that sensation keeps him going. And it's interesting that as we're sitting here describing what we do and don't like to see, we're trying to invoke a lot of that imagery or feeling or sensation. And it's obvious we're trying to use other parts of our brain as well. That is interesting. And it all starts with code smells, right? And then, then yeah, move on to code music. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's interesting. I think that you know, what you're, ta- what you were talking about there was very interesting, but the, the, there have been uh, studies, research done on on deaf people, people who grew up deaf, and and how the linguistic parts of their brain, the linguistic centers of their brain, ma- interact with other parts of their brain. And with hearing people who have a spoken language, and they their their linguistic centers are wired in very intimately with the auditory processing in their brain. But deaf people don't have that connection. They have that connection between the linguistic parts of their brain and the visual processing centers. And, and deaf people have so much greater visual acuity than hearing people. It's crazy. They will play party games, kind of like charades, where they draw shapes in the air and other people try and duplicate these abstract shapes. Hearing people can't play this game with them at all because they're, the deaf people are so far beyond us in it. And, mm. and, and, and they've done uh, quantitative studies on this that show that deaf people have much better visual processing. I wonder if that would have an, a, an effect on how uh, deaf programmers would tie in with other parts of their brain and are they you know, would they use the same sort of metaphors that we use in programming 
That's mm. awesome. From now on, the eardrums of all programmers will be punctured. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you have to do that. <laughs> oh, sorry. I know I'm, I'm definitely a very, very, like, um, audible. Uh, audible? I don't know what the term is. Um, auditory? Audi- <laughs> auditory, yeah. An auditory programmer. Like, for me, um, I can only... The, the lines of code that I can reason most clearly about are the lines that I can pronounce. Like, I have to be able to read it out. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I personally really, um, you know, really like RSpec, um, really liked that development when it came out, was, for me, um, I have a much better t- time um, speaking RSpec lines than speaking test unit lines. And, uh, and, and that enables me to reason about them. So that's that's an interesting thing, not just in the sense that you know you can speak it and you can you can process it that way, but um, o- overall, <clears throat> um, I think it's also interesting. Steve Klabnik on on Twitter, um, I asked uh, people on Twitter what they thought made beautiful code, and he actually said clear narrative structure, which kind of goes beyond just the line to the overall story that's being told, so to speak, and yeah. you know, and so it's you know you you kind of you you process each each line, but then as you as you process each line, you know how it unravels into the overall um, story. Or you know, I, I guess it comes back to you know um, how it appears in your head and how that matches what's on the page. This is there's a, a game that I like to play that is uh, absolutely insane, and it I love doing it because. It breaks people's brains, and it and it breaks them in an informative way. Um, uh, once they get past the past the part where they want to hiss and you know drive a wooden stake through its heart, um, and that is that um, you know with the exception of CoffeeScript and Python, uh, most of us program in a white space independent language. You could, through liberal use of semicolons, compress your Ruby code into a single line of code. Um, so Ruby, of course, is white space independent, right? Well, sometimes. Sometimes yeah. we as programmers are very, very white space dependent. And um, if you if you want to 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 prove to yourself just how dependent you are in the x and y axis of how you lay these tokens out on the page, try spending a day coding in a proportionally spaced font and write narratives. Make your code read like um, if you want to get really crazy. Make your font italic and use like a like a cursive you know font so that it looks like you're writing it by hand uh, and not on graph paper but actual on you know like stationary. Um, what you will find is that you will move you will start moving away from structures and start moving towards messages, which is a really fascinating uh, thing that happens to your head. Um, but it also it changes it changes very strongly uh, how you feel about you know how you represent beauty in the code and how you represent structure of code. D- David, are, are you aware that the original Smalltalk development environment used a proportional font for code? I am not aware of that, but I have repeatedly, uh, I, I, I've, I've said this recently, but I, I recently started looking at Smalltalk, and the reason why is because I have a set of insanities that I have developed carefully and cultivated over 20 years, and I spoke to a Smalltalker about a month ago, two, three weeks ago, and he had the same set of insanities. And so I went and found another small talker, and he had the same set. And I'm like, I've come home. It's like, <laughs> it's like Gonzo when the UFO comes down, and there's all these purple muppets with the big funky noses. It's like, I need to learn small talk. <laughs> I, I, I I recommend it for anyone. That's awesome. <laughs> so can I change tactics a little bit? I got about four tweets on this, and and I want to read each one and then see see what you guys think about what other people think beautiful code is. It is with it. All right. So the first one that I got was from Timothy Rand, and he said, beautiful code is concise but clear and algorithmically clever. I, for I, value uh, positive, what, what does that mean? <laughs> for yeah. value positive definitions of the word clever, yes. Right. Do you remember, <laughs> when, do you remember when rock star used to be a positive word? Um, right. and, now, and now it's a four-letter word. You don't want that stigma of being a rock star. Um, it's a compound word, two four-letter words. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's, uh, I would change the word clever to elegant or to perhaps uh, interesting. Um, but when we start talking about clever where you've outsmarted me with magic, 
um, then it becomes bad clever. But I, I, I suspect that Timothy means the kind of clever where you look at something and go, oh, that's clever. That's cool. Right. So yeah, I do like it when like I see a piece of code and it and in in working it out in my head it, it leads me to a realization or something like that. But if I see a piece of code and it's, you know, insanely complicated and I work it out and and I'm like, "Yeah, we didn't really gain anything from that as opposed to the usual three-line idiom that everybody knows, then I would much rather see the three-line idiom that everybody knows." Okay. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that in that case, James, that three-line idiom is more beautiful. I agree. Absolutely. All right. So we have another one here. It says, the actual form of the code on the screen, not the content, can strike a deep aesthetic chord. And I think we've talked a lot about that already. Amen to that. Yeah, it seems I, I, like we agree. It, so, so related to that, um, why does everyone hate parentheses? Is the, yeah, there, there, it, I don't. It seems I don't. Like well, it parentheses ran over my mother in a DUI accident, and it's been <laughs> bitter ever since. That's, that's, that, that's what it seems like sometimes. <laughs> it's, you know, I've I've looked at I've looked at uh, chunks of code written in in Lisp-like languages or or Lisp itself, and that's some of the most impenetrable code I've ever seen. And I've written microcode, so it, I, I'm curious if there are languages that are hard or impossible to write beautiful code in. Mm-hmm. I think there are. I think there's languages where it's harder, you know, I mean like um uh what's that language where it's actually a a two D grid and you actually follow the grid around? Is it Bafunge? Oh, like Bafunge, yeah. Bafunge, yeah. Um so you actually follow the code around. So I mean I mean, well it's possible that certain algorithms could be expressed well that way. You know, I, I'm pretty sure there are some that would be just you know, a freaking nightmare to read. Um, I would argue that a language is impossible to be beautiful in if you cannot stop, if you cannot rise above its elementary components. So yeah. you you can write beautiful assembly language um, if you are willing to learn the 30 or 40 key operators that you see all the time and then use the call operators. In other words, start abstracting up into functions. But if you stay at a low level, chunky, 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 you might as well be writing... Uh, brain screw uh, since we're not an explicit plot podcast um, uh, you know but 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 the the brain f- language uh, only has five tokens or eight tokens and as a result the program looks like line noise and it's it's ugly it's it's nasty um, it, 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 it just looks like you know line trash and um, if, if you cannot abstract and that's I think is the deal for me um, I hated Lisp's parentheses, and I think the reason people hate parentheses, especially in Lisp, is that parentheses are the only accidental complexity in Lisp. And it's the same accident. It's like you look at Lisp, and all you see are these freaking parentheses. Where in Ruby, um, people don't see the complexity, the accidental complexity, because uh, over here it's a do end, over here it's a it's a pair of curly braces, um, over here it's an each yielding into an array because we can't actually map it the thing. We actually have to yield it as a generator. And so the accidental complexity varies enough that it kind of blurs and drops into the background. Um, but pick up Java and you will see the, you will see the, you should hate public static void final just as much as you hate parentheses. That's great. That, so I, I want to respond to that in a different mode, that if you look at things at well-designed buildings, at attractive, beautiful buildings, there are certain things that you do in the architecture of buildings to make things visually appealing. And one of them is repetition of common elements. Mm-hmm. So you'll have you know, a colonnade with columns spaced regularly. But if you look at a wall that's composed only of cinder blocks and has no other architectural detail, it looks ugly. It doesn't even look mm-hmm. elegantly simple. It just looks ugly because you just have the same block repeated endlessly. But if you start, but you can build things out of cinder blocks that look beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, they're, they're, so go ahead. I think, the, I think the languages that, oh wait, I interrupted someone. No, it's fine. Go ahead. I, I think the languages that let you, uh, th- that lend themselves to beauty may be the ones that lend themselves to a fractal program shape. Um, you know, I mean, I think that might be part of the reason that, that internal DSLs are so popular in Ruby. I mean, the fact that, um, you know, you have this high, very, you might have some sort of very high level definition of something, 
um, like I don't know, like a chef definition or something like that in this, in this DSL. But and yet the form of the DSL is very similar to the form of your low-level code. Um, so you have that kind of fractal um, feel. I was actually going to say almost the same thing that that. David was talking a lot about how we have to be able to build the abstractions. And what I think he basically means by that is we want to be able to slowly morph the programming language into the language of our problem domain so yes, that we can right. solve it that way. And But the key it, there... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I think in Ruby, we're, we're very tuned to that. Like, for example, if you look at... I've been noticing this pattern in Ruby code that... Uh, I, mean, I want to talk about one of my upcoming talks, but we use object inheritance in a totally different way. And one of those ways is that we use object inheritance just to give ourselves a space to lock down a DSL, right? Which is basically what Active Record is, right? It's a it, you inherit from Active Record base, not necessarily for the traditional reasons. You inherit from something in in uh, a programming language. It's so that you have this space between the word class and the word end, where you get this magical DSL of validations wow, and associations yeah. and stuff like that, right? And that pattern's common in Ruby. We're commonly doing that, you know, defining these localized DSLs so that we can zone in on the problem. Yeah, it, it, and amazingly really enough that. I'm sorry. Amazingly enough, that's a manageable approach. If a lot of the the Lisp-like languages come with a but with ways of defining higher-level syntax on top of the the fundamental syntax, and it it usually ends up being just a big mess because yeah. people go off and define their own syntax, and the, and and it's there's so much flexibility there that you can get lost in it. Mm -hmm. All right, we have one more tweet that I want to put out there. Um, Rob underscore Ricks, that's R-O-B underscore R-I-X on Twitter. He said he had two things. He said readability, methods, and variables self-document and are not too clever, which is kind of different from <laughs> Timothy Rand. And brevity factored at a fine grain so each phrase is short and sweet. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I prefer Generally brevity. Generally agree. Unlock that tweet. I prefer <laughs> brevity over the long stuff, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to speak to that, that long line of math with that comment above it that said, this writes the motorcycle. Um, why didn't I, for example, just write motorcycle, this was in C, um, but, you know, motorcycle or, you know, P motorcycle arrow uh, write self. It, I, I could have done that. I could have I called a function on the uh, motorcycle object. Um, actually, it was C, not C++, so you know, I would have to call the function on the structure. Uh, and, the re and the question is, why didn't I do that? And the answer is because I was writing C for the PlayStation uh, for a video game, and I did not have enough time to set up a function call stack. I didn't have uh, the I couldn't I couldn't afford the overhead of a function call. Anybody remember that? Anybody code in the 1990s when you couldn't afford yeah. to call a function? And so it was idiomatic. Still basically on the, the same in Ruby. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, uh, we ignore it and we try to try to avoid it. You know, we try to paper over that, and it, and um, and so it was an acceptable idiom to the team um, that you know my physics function was 250 lines long, and it was because it had to be um, because it couldn't call any other sub functions. So, what, what you 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 didn't have an optimizing compiler that would inline um, the. Uh, this is 1999, and the PlayStation tools were actually circa 1978. It was it's <laughs> game game, uh, game platform compilers were really way 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 behind the state of the art back then. I remember the the actually the physics function ended up getting to the to the point where it was it finally reached 800 lines of code, and the program suddenly dropped. Our our game suddenly dropped from 30 30 frames a second to 15. Um, and uh, we went in and, and debugged it, and we found out that the physics function would no longer fit in the uh, function cache on the PlayStation. And so we had to break it into two separate functions so that it would fit in the cache and, and, and stay in, uh, in the CPU's RAM. And so adding a function call actually doubled the speed of the program back up to 30 frames a second. <laughs> wow. So, that's, nice. um, I think that's an interesting point, though. Like... Uh, as I've evolved, I've like grown to hate comments more and more. And originally it was like, oh, you know, 
comments are great because they tell me what it does and then I realized that they lie to you you know a lot of the time and I was like oh maybe that's not so good and then then it was like well it's okay to put a comment when something's tricky and I need that little explanation hint and then more recently I've begun to realize that in that case you just wrote the code wrong you know like I used to write these I used to write these like in test unit I'd write like assert and then something and then I'd put a comment at the end of the line telling me why I did that thing, what it meant, right? <laughs> Until I realized eventually that assert has that second argument, which is for the uh, failure message, which that's its <laughs> job, right? That's what it's yeah. supposed to do, mm-hmm. tell you what so, went wrong. So you just move that this, comment into the message. I have this so, working rule that says, um, you know, if I'm if I write a piece of code, by the time I'm done with the code, um, somebody should be able to come in and code review the code and say, um, "This is so. This is so obvious. An idiot could have write, written it. Why are we paying you?" Uh, now, I I can't say that I always that that I always you know hold to that rule, but because I, you I, couldn't have done it yourself. <laughs> but you know, but uh, it. it I keep that role in my rule in my head as sort of a counterbalance to my natural inclinations as a hacker to do clever things. You know, it's it's just co- kind of my kill your, my personal kill your darlings rule. The uh, the rule of of make it so simple it looks like an idiot could have done it. If you if your code is so simple that it looks like an idiot could have done it, um, that leaves you free to build an application that blows people's minds. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I have a comment. We're we're Chuck's going to start cutting us off for time here. Yeah, but, about two um, minutes. Has anybody ever had the experience of working with dishonest code? Um, I wrote a rant about this a while back where it, like, like young programmers will spend all their time sneaking up on the compiler to try and trick it into giving them <laughs> the answer that they want instead of just saying, I want this, do it, and, and break it down and, and break it down break it down correctly. And just the, because I'm the king of the inappropriate metaphor, it, it just I, I feel like sometimes is there a difference between taking some code and saying, I love you, sweetheart, but we need to improve your character. We need to, uh, you need to sit up straight and have good posture and you need to wash, you know, your armpits and you need to bathe every day and, you know, to improve the character of your code versus slicking up a fat daughter for a beauty contest. Uh, (laughs) Okay, you guys are laughing. So you know what I'm talking about, right? In the code, right? Has anybody had that experience of working on just, just outright dishonest code? Okay. Okay. Really quick story about dishonest code. My favorite, one of my favorite lines of code ever, um, was a line of C code that it was a pound define, um, you know, which is basically a like a global constant definition, um, and it said pound define seven. So the word seven uh, equals, well, it's not an equals in a pound define, but basically pound define seven equals five. Awesome. The, the numeral five. I'm not done. And then there was a comment next to it that said twelve. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. So hey. it was two two lies in one line. <laughs> the, the, best, the best one I had along those lines was about comments will lie to you. Um, and I tracked down the history on this one. It was assembly language. And the line of code was mo- was uh, XOR EAX, comma EAX. If you know your assembly language, if you XOR a number with itself, you get zero. Um, and on 286-era processors and older, it was faster to, to do that than it was to move a zero or write a zero into the, the EAX register. Um, and, and hint, the 286 didn't have an EAX. So there's your first code smell. Um, it's, it's just as fast to just say put a zero in EA, EAX. Um, the comment next to it was put one in EAX. <laughs> Ouch. And somebody had, somebody had written put zero in, or put a one in EAX, and so it was move EAX comma one, and then they changed it later to move EAX comma zero because they, they were putting the wrong constant in, and then somebody came along, and they didn't update the comment, and then somebody came along and optimized it to move EAX comma EAX and left the comment put one in EAX, and the end result is unless you are were familiar with this 1980s era assembly language optimization that this is actually a zero, you would believe the comment over the code, and down the road you would go ex- 180 degrees out of phase with what was actually in that register. <laughs> wow. That's kind of interesting, but so just to throw a counterexample to what we're discussing here, 
Uh, one of the things I did recently at um, uh, the OKRB meeting, I wanted to try to uh, bring up a topic that could help everybody. So I just uh, went in and, and did like a Ruby dash H and a shell to show all the command line options. And yeah. we just started going through the list and walking down them and showing them to people. And uh, along the way, you know, we covered things like dash P, dash N, dash I, which allow you to write simple Ruby scripts at the command line. And I actually use those a lot. I, I'm pretty uh, uh, big on using Ruby in, in uh, my shell whenever I can to help me out with things. And um, I, I started showing tricks like argf, and um, then I showed the one where um, you can do if regex range operator regex. And if you guys don't know that one, you need to go back and look at Perl or, or at yes. least uh, how mm -hmm. Ruby inherits that one. And, and I would it's probably, the flip-flop, isn't it? Yes, yep. it's the flip-flop. Mm -hmm. And I would probably describe that one as pure evil, but I do use it. I have used <laughs> it, and uh, you know, it is probably dishonest and things like that. But you know, maybe there's certain areas where it's okay. Like if I'm slinging together some shell command and... The flip-flop operator helps me. Then you know, great, more power to me. You know, I, know, you know, I would say that that I would say that that is you know, in in that particular case, that's something that pretty well expresses what you want to do. I mean, you're selecting a range between this match and this match. Mm -hmm. And James, you spend a lot of time processing log files. Otherwise, you wouldn't have written the faster CSV library. And the flip-flop is beautiful for that, right? You know, it's it's start processing once you've finished uh, processing all the header pragmas of the file. Now process the guts of the file. Now stop processing because we reached the footer of the file. What's funny on, about the flip-flop operator is try to expand it sometime. I mean, seriously, try to expand it into, you know, the code that it requires to do the same thing. You know, I mean, just to start, you're doing regex range regex, whereas really it should be something like, you know, dollar sign underscore matches regex, you know, dot dot dollar sign underscore matches regex. But but even then you need a variable to track state and when Yeah, you you've got a state machine in there, yeah. Am I done processing the header? Am I am I done processing data? Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting, concise uh, thing, you know, and, and even like maybe to give a simpler example, almost every bash shell Example I see if, if something somebody doing something in Bash where they want a conditional, I would say that the AND and OR operators are way more popular in Bash as conditionals than using an IF because the IF in Bash is clumsy, whereas yeah, the, is. And, the AND and OR is very concise and simple and it does a conditional. And very elegant, yep. yeah. All right, well, I've, I've got to cut it off so that we can get through the picks and still end in 13, less than 13 minutes. So um, we have two guest panelists, so I'm just going to explain really quickly. The picks are really just anything that makes your life easier. Um, it's cool if they're code-related, but they don't have to be. Um, you know, So just any tool that you're using or anything like that. Um, let's go ahead and start with Peter. We haven't heard from him for a while. Yeah, but was it Josh that was talking about dishonesty in code? No. Oh, that was everyone's David confusing. Abby. Everyone's confusing. Everyone thinks Josh said everything in this podcast. Well, that's <laughs> usually how Josh it goes. Episode. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say like the main dishonest thing I see is where people just don't put um, tests in, but they put the whole test harness and everything in, and then you download the library and run the test, and it's like pending, pending, pending. I absolutely hate that. <laughs> that is very ugly code. Um, so yeah, just to bring in one thing that's slightly relevant to this, um, you may have heard of a guy called Michael Edgar. Um, I think he works for Carbonica. Um, he's been working on his thesis, which is called uh, Static Analysis for Ruby in the Presence of Gradual Typing, which I know sounds super, super exciting. But it's basically resulted in a project called Laser, which can be used to perform kind of static and semi-static analysis of uh, Ruby code. And he's put together this toolkit called Laser, and it allows you to do lots of really cool things, uh, like analyze um, you know, the, the scopes of things, where scopes are perhaps wrong, Within code, um, where it's hard to tell, like you know, certain things that are going on, blocks that are being ignored, stuff like that. And I think Laser could eventually be used to produce some really good, good um, code beautification tools and all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm going to put in the link to you know his um, project for that and his yeah, if you want to read his thing. Um, so yeah, that's my one thing. I'll pass it on. Not to mention all his right. blog posts are are fantastic. They are. Where, where's his blog? Uh, just put a link in the chat and we'll we'll yeah, add I'll it put to the a link show notes. The chat. Yeah. All right, uh, Dave, go ahead. 
All right, so I always do something weird, so I'm going to do something just plain Jane vanilla and already in your toolkit probably, um, which is uh, mini test, um, especially if you require mini test slash spec. Uh, I, I love RSpec and I love Cucumber. Um, because I love those DSLs and I love writing expressive. Uh, I think I, I think expressive, beautiful code. I, I, I'm not a huge fan of straight up test unit where you have the assert, assert, assert. Um, I love actually specking things out and saying it should behave this way and it must do this and and, and that sort of thing. And um, I was really kind of wary of mini test until somebody showed me mini test slash spec. And it's uh, for vanilla RSpec, it's a drop-in replacement. I mean, it's the same syntax; it does the same things, and it's already rolled in with Ruby. Um, and so, I, I, I'm, I believe it does not do as much monkey patching and craziness and, and weirdness as RSpec does. Uh, and the other simple tool uh, actually has simple in the name. It's a gem called SimpleCov. And you include SimpleCov, and then in your test harness, the very first thing you do before you require even your test framework, before you require any of your libraries, you require SimpleCov, and this turns on coverage logging of every file that gets touched after uh, it loads up and starts, and it emits it out to a Cov directory or a coverage directory. And those two tools make it so that on a brand new project, you have code coverage metrics in you know, under under two minutes and you're up and running and you have coverage and there's none of, there's no high ceremony. It's just give me coverage, give me test, let's go. All right. Uh, James, go ahead. Okay, as I said uh, many times, I'm drugged, so not clever. So instead, I'm just going to list the things I've been reading lately that you should be reading too. Um, and so I will start with the reason... Uh, both Abdi and Josh are on this episode is because they write awesome blogs about beautiful code, uh, mostly, and and or at least ways to get there or or what you know good code practices. So I I think you should read both of those blogs. Um, for Josh, that's has many through, and Abdi's is uh, virtuous code. Is that right, Abdi? Yeah. Okay. So uh, those blogs, Google them, and if you're not reading them, you need to. They're amazing. Uh, Abdi recently did an awesome post on Ruby's warnings and why they're amazing and why you don't understand them, and that should be required reading <laughs> for all Ruby developers. And Josh has an awesome post uh, pretty high on his blog that's about um, uh, improving readability by using Booleans to indicate uh, true false flag, or sorry, symbols. Uh, in the place of the Booleans as flags. Um, and I've actually written about that exact same topic on my blog before, so I, I totally agree with it. Um, and it's a great idea, it's stupid simple, and it makes your code better. So both of these blogs you should definitely be reading. And then for non-code, I've been reading uh, John Ronson's The Psychopath Test. And uh, it's a really great book about how uh, he slowly gets into the world of identifying psychopaths and, and learns what the tests are, and, and you get the little criteria for how you should spot psychopaths. I'm only about halfway through the book at this point, and already I'm, I'm thinking about family members I know and, and ticking them off on the test you know, to see how, how far down the psychopath scale are. So I really recommend that everybody read this book because next time you run into me at a conference, you know, I'm probably sitting there listening to you talk, rating you on the psychopath scale. So <laughs> you might as well at least be doing the same thing to me. So uh, I recommend the psychopath test. They they actually had an episode of This American Life on the psychopath test, and it was really interesting talking to it people is. who had passed the test and failed the test. And yeah, it was really interesting. It is very interesting. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and go next. Um, one thing that I've been using a lot lately, um, I mentioned before that I got a virtual assistant. And she's actually been helping me uh, post a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and she's actually posting all of my podcast episodes now. And I just pass them up to her, the raw WAV files. Um, I pass them up to her using Dropbox. And then she processes them and uploads them, sends them, you know, I get them back so I can put them in videos and stuff. But anyway, um, so that's one tool that I, I highly recommend is Dropbox. Um, another one that I've used in the past to kind of get a feel for what's going on in my code, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily lead you down the path of beautiful code, but it can point out problems in your code, and its implementation is metric foo, um, which has a whole bunch of other tools like Reek and Rudy, uh, which 
some of them bring up like cyclomatic complexity and there there's another tool reek is uh, code smells and so even if it's not giving you beautiful code it can e- at least give you better code and so i'll go ahead and put that in as well um it's something that i've really liked and, and i've used in the past and uh, you can hook it into your ci machine and get the reports like every week and see where you're improving and not improving I want to say there's an updated version of uh, Metric Foo out there called Metricality. I'll I'll look for that and inc- and include that if I'm right. Okay. And then um, let's go ahead and let uh, Josh give us a couple of picks. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I got to say this is one of my favorite bits of the podcast. It's all the interesting picks that people put out there. So I have two. Um, Last week, uh, there was a fair amount of time that the panelists talked about fixtures in Rails, right? That was last week? Yes. And uh, so one of my picks is the fixture builder gem. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that, but it it was loosely based on the fixture scenarios uh, library that Tom Preston Werner did way back when. Well, way back when was a couple years ago, I think. <laughs> and uh, so uh, one of my fellow pivots, Ryan D, he's RDY on GitHub, has uh, this repo called Fixture Builder, and there's a gem from it. And what it does is you can programmatically create and populate, create objects and populate your database using whatever technique you like. Uh, you can just directly allocate active record objects. You can use, uh, was it uh, Mechanize or Factory Girl if you're that crazy. And then once you've populated the database, Fixture Builder will dump the database into a bunch of YAML files and it will create names for them based on rules about which value, which of the, which of the fields or attributes in the records should be used to name it. And this I think gives you the best of both worlds in dealing with fixtures. You can create them in whatever style you like, and, and it, you, so you don't have to be dealing with the YAML files and figuring out what ID and what when, when one YAML file should be hooked into a, the other YAML file. And it's a lot more robust than the Foxy Fixtures um, hash-based uh, associations. So you can create them however you want, and then you get all of the benefits and speed of having YAML-based fixtures. I am going to track down Ryan and give him my personal thanks because last week I took a legacy uh, project and a set of key models. I added a, a method called fixture name so that I could build YAML files out of the database because everything depended on the structure of their data. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, 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 and I, I should say with uh, one little bit of advice around there is that fixture builder uh, works best when you start your project with it. Trying to retrofit Fixture Builder into an existing project is much more difficult than I would like it to be, mm. but uh, but when you start with it, um, it works pretty well. And I think the problem with uh, transitioning to it is that usually people create a lot of ad hoc test objects in their tests, mm-hmm. and and the Fixture Builder uh, p- works best if you're using what a pivotal we call the cast of characters pattern for fixtures, where you want to have all of the different scenarios that you're testing for present in your fixtures all at once. So you may need to come up with you know, a, a list of players, you know, the cast of characters for your, or what is it, Dramatis Personae, for uh, all the fixtures that you're using, and you want to make sure that you're not breaking things when you add new fixtures there. So all right, um, that, that's pick one, and I have a very quick pick for the second one, and that is Vivo Barefoot Shoes. So I, I think a lot of people have seen the Vibram five fingers shoes that look like you're wearing toe socks. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a pair of those and I love them. They're actually really great shoes. Very comfortable. They're, I've been caving in lava tubes with them. They're very durable. Uh, but I don't like that they don't look like shoes. And they also don't have much protection on the top part of the foot. So if I'm riding on the subway, people can step on my feet and I go, ow. But Vivo Barefoot uh, is a... a part of a brand called Terraplana or Terraplana and they uh, they have shoes that have the same sort of barefoot action as the five fingers but they look like regular shoes and I've been wearing them for 
uh, coming on two years now, and my feet have actually relaxed and changed shape and spread out, and I have much stronger feet. I can walk around all day in these shoes, and my feet feel st- still feel great at the end of the day. If I come home from work, I walk in the house, I don't bother to take my shoes off because they feel great. And uh, they're very comfortable shoes. They, they look nice. The, the one thing I'll say is that they, um, it's not a perfect shoe, and they do have occasional quality problems, but their customer service is, is pretty decent, and they have a good exchange program. The, they are, the only place you can buy them in the United States at a store is in New York City. Otherwise, you have to order them online. But they're, right. I love so, them. They're great. So in a podcast about beautiful code, Josh's pick is deceptive footwear. I love it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I, I would also like if there's a link to a post somewhere about the cast of characters pattern. I think that's interesting, but I don't think we have time to go into it right now. I don't think it's ever been written up, but it's probably worth doing. All right. Uh, Avdi, what picks do you have for us? All right. Well, I've got uh, I've got a a tool and a paper. Um, the uh, the tool uh, it's not that new, uh, but I've been getting really into it lately, um, and it's been been really nice. Um, it's called Guard, um, and uh, if you're familiar with AutoTest and RSpector and and various attempts that have been made over the years to auto run tests in the background as you change your files, um, it's sort of in that vein. Uh, but it's um, but it's a lot more generalized. So it has this amazing array of plugins where you can you can plug in your tests so it'll run your tests for you as you as you edit your code. You can plug in Spork so it'll restart your Spork server every time you change something that that has you know changes the uh, overall application environment. It'll restart Passenger for you with a with the appropriate plugin. Um, and I've even learned about like some new tools that I didn't even know about just because they had had guard plugins. So like the the live reload tool. Um, so I've been getting into the habit of just throwing a guard file into all my all the projects that I work on, so that it'll just um, start things up, um, start all the services up that I want to be running while I'm working on that project. Um, matter of fact, recently I wrote a um, a little inline plugin that would start up a Redis server um, for a project that I was using that required Redis. Um, so guard is the tool, um, and um, uh, the uh, the paper I want to recommend is called Object Oriented Programming: An Objective Sense of Style. It's from 1988. Uh, it's from the uh, the Uppsala 88 proceedings, and um, I read this because I, I had gotten into some conversations um, as a result of some of a blog post that I I wrote um, about the law of Demeter, which is um, kind of a a, um, a rule or a guideline for object oriented um, programming. And um, and I wanted to kind of make sure that I understood it um, as well as I thought I did. So I, I went back and I read, this is the original paper where the law of Demeter was introduced. And uh, it's a fascinating read. Um, I think everything in it is completely applicable to the stuff that we're doing today. Um, and, uh, and there's just, you know, some good insight there into, um, I, I think it's really appropriate um, it's it's uh, apropos of the con- conversation that we had today because basically the origin of the paper and the origin uh, of the law was um, a group of people with a large object-oriented programming uh, program saying uh, you know we know that certain values seem to be good uh, in object-oriented programming is there a simple heuristic that we can apply to our code uh, that you know when we when we evaluate it for that heuristic if 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 it if it um, if that heuristic matches, then it will. Then the code will have all these other good qualities, like um, loose coupling and information hiding and stuff like that. And the the heuristic that they came up with is what came to be known as the law of Demeter or Demeter. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how it's pronounced. I recently had uh, the principle of tell, don't ask drilled into my head hard because of small talk, and I was trying to explain it to someone. Uh, it, it means this, it means this, it means this, and I, basically what it means is you can't ever call an accessor. You have to actually just send a yeah. message. And somebody said, oh, it's the law of Demeter. And I said, no, it's, no it, it is exactly the law of Demeter. <laughs> you cannot say um, myframework.getwindow.drawfunction because that, that middle function is an accessor. You are right. pulling something back to send a message to that. And the uh, great the, thing about papers from, the, from, the, uh, from before the 90s is um, they were working with with Smalltalk and CLOS, you know, the common list object, object system, and so it was in that period before everyone's brain had been broken by Java. 
They hadn't been corrupted <laughs> by formalist philosophy, but that's that's a rant for my other podcast. I think it was C plus plus that broke people's brains first, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, and and as a as a almost classics major um, in Greek, it's pronounced Demeter, but mm-hmm. I think it was it may have been the Demeter system that the law of of what I pronounce Demeter comes from. So I don't. Yes, it was the Demeter system. Yeah, um, and I don't know how they pronounced it. Yeah. All right. Well, this is uh, quickly devolving, so I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna hijack <laughs> oh, the conversation. Actually, Chuck, before you do, for people listening to the podcast but not actually checking the show notes, the gem that I suggested before is called Metrical, not Metricality. Metricality. It's just Metrical. Gem install Metrical. All right. Sounds like a magical metrical. Uh, yes. Gem. All right. Well. Um, I want to thank you all for uh, coming and uh, joining in the Ruby Rogues podcast. Um, we have, once again, uh, in no particular order, David Brady. Awesome. Oh, wait, that's Peter. <laughs> Avdi Grimm. Thank you very much. Uh, James Edward Gray. Totally awesome. Josh Susser. Hey, it's been great. Peter Cooper. Y'all stole my catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Charles Maxwood. Uh, we will catch you next week. In the meantime, you can get the show notes at rubyrogues.com. That's R-U-B-Y-R-O-G-U-E-S. I have people trying to spell it Ruby Rhodes. It's not. Um, you, I would also appreciate uh, anyone leaving uh, comments on the blog and uh, leaving a review in iTunes. And Ruby Rhodes was Ozzy's guitarist. You're so dumb. Wait, did you forget Avdi in the sign-off? No. no. He got me. Okay. I must have just had trouble paying attention. <laughs> All right. Give me, give me some credit the here. Drugs are kicking in. Drugs are <laughs> active. Yes. Yeah. If we hear some major keyboard mash and then James is silent, we'll know what happened. All right. Uh, so thank you again for listening. We will catch you next week where we'll talk about something else interesting and involved. If you do want to hear about something, go to rubyrogues.com. Click on request a topic. Type in what you want us to talk about. And if it gets enough votes, we'll we'll give it an episode. And uh, that's it. Thank you again for listening. Thanks, everybody.